Mark 15, 16 through 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him mixed wine with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one at his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Pray together. Lord, the scene that Mark at times so graphically portrays for us, and then at times just so simply says, they crucified him. Lord, the scene of your love, the scene of your sacrifice, the scene of what you endured on behalf of your people, God. If we look at it from a human perspective, it's ugly. It's gnarly, it's brutal, it's unjust. But Lord, with spiritual eyes, you can give your people the ability to see something beautiful here. Lord, not a defeated man, but an exalted king. Lord, not someone to be mocked, but someone to be worshipped. And so Lord, today as we come into this place and ask for your spirit to lead us and guide us, I pray that you would give us a vision of the cross. Lord, give us a vision of Christ crucified, simply Jesus, that we may see, Lord, something true about ourselves, that though our sin is ugly, that you have dealt with it once and for all. Lord, I pray that we would experience grace and forgiveness and peace today as we look at the cross. God, teach us. But I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, that I decided to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified, that your faith may not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so today, as we look at the cross, may we experience your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have to be honest with ourselves about something. That Christians are strange people. Think about it. We get together every week 
open an ancient text and, and, and study something that was written thousands of years ago and we, we talk to and sing to somebody that nobody can see because he was died and, and raised from the dead and ascended bodily into heaven. And we believe and we tell people that if they also believe in this man who died and was raised from the dead and ascended bodily into heaven, that they will escape eternal punishment and receive an eternity in paradise with the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them out of nothing with a word. Just going to let that sink in for a second. That's what we believe. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. But you have to understand how weird this is. You have to recognize how strange this is. You understand why it's difficult to explain to people who do not see the world the way that you see it. Maybe you're here and you don't see the world in this way and you hear people going, gosh, I've never heard it explained so ridiculously. And people shout amen and you're like, I don't get it. If you're here and you're a believer, you don't see the world the same way that the world sees the world. That is because if you are a Christian, something in you has shifted. God has given you the ability to see things differently. It's as if we're wearing special glasses that help us to see what the world can't. See, when I take my glasses off, I see two of everything. No, no joke. <laughs> That's why I wear glasses. And now there you are. People that I love. Not just double blurry images. But when we trust in Jesus, it's like we've been given this spiritual sight. This corrective sight that, that, is, that we've been given his eyes to see by the Spirit of God who interprets the Scriptures so that we can see what God sees. If you're a Christian, if you've received the Holy Spirit, you see the world very differently. You are given the opportunity to see the world the way God sees the world. And the rest of humanity may not understand. That's okay. Remember those 3D images that they would set up in, in malls back in the 90s that were super popular? And you'd see people like staring at them confused. Like, like it, if you didn't know what was going on, you're like, what in the world? Like, what is this? And then someone walks up who just like has like the spiritual gift of being able to see the 3D image in there and walks up and goes, oh, a dinosaur. And you're just like, how in the world? What is this? Like, we've been given this opportunity, this ability to just see the mystery, to see the goodness, to see the beauty, to see the glory of God in ordinary, mundane things. Perhaps there's no greater example of this than the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about the cross for a second. Have you ever thought how strange it is that as Christians, we sing songs about crucifixion? We, we wear gold and decorative jewel-encrusted crosses around our neck, this sign of of, of, of physical torment, this sign of, of brutal execution. Some tattoo them on their bodies. Imagine someone you loved was unjustly tried and condemned to death in the electric chair. 
and you went and got an electric chair tattooed on your back and underneath the word thankful. Do you understand how weird this is? Now, before you like get up and leave, because like this, you know, pastor's gone nuts and he's abandoning the faith. I'm not abandoning the faith. I believe this is good. This is beautiful. I love the cross. I am thankful for the cross. But you understand why the world would look at that and go, what on earth is going on? What on earth is, is going on that would make you treat a cross in this way? Now, let's not forget that on the surface of this text, it's, it's a brutal and disgusting scene. If you've been a Christian for a while and you've read and heard and sung about the crucifixion for your whole life, you might forget that what Mark is writing here is vile. It's disgusting. It's tragic. It's ripe with injustice. And yet the cross has become a symbol of hope. It's become a symbol of salvation and joy because what happened on the cross has turned the entire world upside down. What happened on the cross has changed us from looking at a digital image in a 90s mall to see the beauty and the power and the glory of God in 3D. Is turned everything upside down. And so to begin, I want us to try to understand what's happening here in this text because Mark's audience would have a very different context for this than we do. See, Mark's audience, realistically, probably, have actually seen someone be crucified. What Mark says in three short words, they crucified him. They knew the world of torture and pain and shame that that was. You may have seen the passion of the Christ, but film cannot depict the pain of the cross. Now, I'm not going to intentionally try to gross anybody out, but fair warning, crucifixion is disturbing. And the people who invented crucifixion absolutely intended for others to see it and to be appalled by it. It was a warning. It was a deterrent to anyone who would ever dare cross Rome. This is what we do to people who rise up against Caesar. It was designed to inflict as much pain as humanly possible. And so when we look at the pain of the cross, what stands out is physical pain. Before Jesus was crucified, he was scourged. A scourge was a long whip that was frayed into multiple ends that had a piece of sharp bone or jagged pottery or glass tied to the end of it so that each strike of the whip didn't just create a welt, but lacerations that would go down to the bone. And so his back was whipped and, 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 and flayed. And then he was brought before the whole battalion, which could have been as many as 200 to 600 soldiers. And they beat him with their fists and they beat him with reeds. They wove together a crown of thorns. I have bougainvillea bushes in my front yard. And I just think about those thorns, those long reeds, thorny reeds being woven together and not just placed on his head, but the text says that they beat him in the head with the reeds, beating that crown of thorns into his head. 
before nailing his hands and feet to a wooden cross and lifting him up naked to be scoffed at and mocked and humiliated. Then for the most part, when people were crucified, they, they, and every time they were left there to die, but it wasn't that they like bled out. The places that they put the nails wouldn't cause them to die before dying of exposure or, or suffocation. They would, if the, if the animals, if the wild animals didn't come and scavenge from the live bodies, they would eventually die of asphyxiation. See, the word asphyxiation and crucifixion come from the same word. And so as their arms would be stretched out to the point of dislocation, their back filleted against a wooden cross, nails in their feet, they would have to push themselves up, rubbing their back against the wood just to take a breath. And when they became too weak or lost the will, to, to, to push up on that nail in their feet. They suffocated. That's why if they wanted someone to die sooner, they would come and they would break their legs. You know that from some of the gospel accounts, that, the, that the, they would break the legs of the criminals, but they didn't break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. Because with broken legs, they could not stand up to take that breath. But the pain was not just physical. It was emotional. Crucifixion was humiliated, humiliating. They They were crucified naked and in a public place so that every passerby would see them and be warned not to double cross Rome. But in Jesus' case, it was even worse. See, many times when Jewish men were crucified, they would receive uh, compassion from their people, from the Jewish people. But not Jesus. Jesus receives no compassion from his people. Jesus is rejected by everyone. The soldiers mocked him. The religious leaders mocked him. It says the passers-by, that the people just walking by mocked him. The other crucified people on his right and his left mocked him. Jesus is universally rejected by those that he came to save. And in his greatest suffering, The greatest physical pain is moment of need. He's rejected by everyone, but it gets worse because the pain wasn't just physical. It wasn't just emotional. It was spiritual. As a man who had never known the pain of sin, never known the shame of sin, received the full weight of sins of the world into himself as though it were his own. Church, we have to understand That the pain of this moment, the pain that Jesus is experiencing is unfathomable for you and I. The amount of torture that he is going through is brutal. This is an ugly, ugly scene. When we experience pain in life, we're often quick to think, God, where are you? And I think when we look at this text without knowing the magnitude and the importance and the purpose of what's going on here, we can look at this and say, where is God? But church, we know that God is on the cross. And so when we experience pain, however great or however little, and we're tempted to to ask God, God, where are you? 
His response is identifying with you. I am identifying with you in your pain. I am with you in your pain. I know your struggle, not just from afar or not just from my past, but I am with you in it because I died for it. This question of where is God, it's the first question. It's an easy question that comes to mind when we're only looking at the pain. But there's something else taking place here. There's something else in this text. And that, that, that beautiful thing, that mysterious thing, is that in all of its ugliness, and all of its brutality, and all of its pain and violence, what is happening here is happening according to God's plan. So there's a purpose to the cross. There's not just pain in the cross. There's a purpose for the cross. All of this happens in fulfillment of the scriptures. See, this doesn't just mean that there are random places in the Old Testament that speak of Christ's death or speak of his resurrection or speak of the things that he would do. Rather, when it talks about, when the scriptures talk about all of this happening in accordance with the scriptures or in fulfillment of the scriptures, it means that Jesus is fulfilling the entire story of the Bible. Not just parts of it, but the whole thing. See, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made everything good, made everything good and and beautiful. And and shortly after God made everything, the humans that he made and put in the garden to be his representatives, to care for the garden, they rebelled against God. They turned from him. They wanted to be their own rulers and they ate the forbidden fruit. They ate from the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so God comes to them and and and, and searches for them and says, says to the man, what have you done? And he says, God, the woman that you gave me, it's her fault. And And the woman goes, it was the serpent's fault. He deceived me. And God says something terrible. He says, because of this, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is this. Cursed is that. Because of the sin that the humans let into the world, everything that existed that was made to be good has been been cursed. It's, It's fallen. But God said in Genesis 3.15 that there would come a day that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, but he would be wounded in the process, that the serpent would wound his heel. And we read this in the first few pages of the Bible, and we're familiar with the story. Maybe you're here and you're familiar with that story, and so it's just, yeah, I've heard that before, I've heard that before, I've heard that before. Maybe you're, you're here and, and you haven't heard that before. And if you read that in the Bible, you would turn the page and you would go, okay, where is the seed of the woman? Where is the one who is going to crush the head of the serpent? And so the entire story of the Bible is anticipating this hero who would come and save them from their sin that they let into the world. But there's a problem. Because God can't deal with the sin in the world. He can't eliminate the sin in the world without eliminating people. Because our sin is not just external to us, it's in us. It's not only affecting us, but it's produced by us. And so God wouldn't destroy sin without destroying the people that he loved and created. You see, the Bible doesn't tell a story about how humans can save themselves. 
This isn't like the other world religions that say, if you just do this and do that, you can escape the pain in the world and have freedom and be reincarnated, or you can work your way up to God. The Bible's not about that. This is not a book about earning salvation, earning your way to God, or being able to practice a few you know, perfect rituals to experience a better you. That's not what the Bible's about. It's not. It's about, it's about God seeking to destroy the sin in the world that keeps us from enjoying Him. The Bible is a book uh, uh, not about how people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's, it's about how no one is able to live the life that God has called us to. Even the greatest heroes in the biblical story are deeply flawed. As good as they are, sometimes they can't seem to get it right. The Bible's not a book of heroes that if you just try hard enough, you can be like them. No, it's a book about people who are just like you. They're just like you. They want to do the right thing and they can't. Sometimes they don't even want to do the right thing. Be honest with yourself. Sometimes you don't want to. It's okay. You're in good company. Just like everyone else in Scripture. The Bible is not a bunch of people to admire so we can become like them. It's a book full of fearful and insecure people who need a Savior. Church, I love you, but we are a church full of fearful and insecure people who need a Savior. We need a Savior. We need Jesus, someone to crush the head of the serpent. And so in the fullness of time, God came to us by sending His Son, Jesus, to live a life free of sin, to take into Himself the full weight of sin and transgression for the entire world so that God could judge and punish the sin of the world without destroying us in the process. See, though the Roman people, though the Roman purpose of the cross was to shame and punish those who didn't obey Rome, God's purpose for the cross was to receive in himself the pain and shame that we deserve for not obeying God. So Jesus fulfilled the scriptures by suffering the pain of the cross so that we might experience the power of the cross. What we are invited into is not to chastise ourselves for our sin, to look at the cross and say, I need to treat myself with such pain and brutality to to somehow atone for my sin. No, the invitation to us today is to see what Jesus has done and experience the power of the cross. Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, when I think of a ransom, maybe it's like you. I think of hostage situations. Right? When I think of a ransom, somebody paying the ransom, I think of, of hostage situations. But a ransom is a price paid to set a prisoner free. So to think of it another way, in the ancient world, if somebody owed a debt they couldn't pay, they could be imprisoned or sold into slavery to pay that debt. But to be ransomed would mean that someone came alongside you, paid the debt that you couldn't pay so that you could be set free and experience your freedom. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for anyone who would believe. And so in our world, when someone is indebted, someone that you are indebted to lets you off the hook, we call that forgiveness. Right? There's lots of talk today about student loan forgiveness, right? The debt that you owe, 
maybe. Maybe it'll be forgiven. But that doesn't mean that the debt just goes away. Someone's got to pay that debt. Someone's going to pay for it. Now, if I keep talking about student loans, I'm going to get more political than I want to. But someone has to pay that debt. And so this is the power of the cross, that somebody has paid the debt that we owe. And we call this forgiveness. But we can't dilute the meaning of that word. So we can't water down that word forgiveness. It's a very important word. Sometimes we think of forgiveness as though God looked at all of our sin and just said, forget about it. Don't worry about it. I forgive you. Right? That downplays the violence. That downplays the weight of our sin. That's what you say when somebody accidentally eats your sandwich. Hey, don't worry about it. It's cool. I'll get another one. You're my friend. I love you. What's a sandwich between friends? And it downplays what, what, what happens. If we think of forgiveness like this uh, regarding our sin against God, it betrays the fact that, that, that sin is, is active rebellion against God. But we can't forget what forgiveness entails. It doesn't mean that your sin just magically goes away. You may not be required to pay the penalty, but someone has to pay to repair what your sin broke. Think about what it would cost to repair your car if somebody vandalized it, right? They, they uh, slashed your tires, they bash your windshield, they carve awful things into the paint, and the, the vandal is discovered and, and is brought to you, okay? And, and you say, because you're a godly person, I forgive you. To many people, what that means is I won't press charges against you, but you still need to pay for the damages. And what I'm telling you is that's not forgiveness. That's not the forgiveness that we have received on the cross. It's merely foregoing the right to seek retribution, punishment for the crime, while still requiring restitution that they make right what they took. And so what it's saying is, I won't have you punished, but I'm still going to make you pay. That's not forgiveness. And I think, sadly, this is the way many Christians understand God's forgiveness. That we've been saved from the penalty of sin. We're not going to go to hell. But for the rest of my life, God's going to make me pay. That's not forgiveness. That's not forgiveness. That's not good news. That's actually kind of a bummer news. That's not the good news of the gospel. But there's another false forgiveness that I think circulates in the church. And that's the idea that somehow what Jesus accomplished on the cross means that your sin really isn't all that bad. Right? Like on the cross, Jesus gave you this infinite bank account. Right? And sin is making a withdrawal from that account. It is like, you know, you're, 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 you're debiting that account, but it's all good. I got, I got the money to cover it. So as long as I've got the money to cover it because of what Jesus has done for me, then it's really not that bad. It's like a kid with daddy's credit card, just like running up the bill. Right? That's not, that's, 
that downplays the, the magnitude, the violence, the, the, the grotesqueness of our sin. This isn't right either. So how do we understand this? How do we understand forgiveness? For you to forgive someone requires, requires that you acknowledge the full cost of the wrong committed against you. To forgive someone requires that you acknowledge the full cost of the wrong committed against you and then choose to pay the price yourself. That's forgiveness. That's what it means to forgive. So go back to the vandalism idea. It's looking at the vandal and saying, what you did was wrong. It's not okay, but I'm not going to press charges and I'll pay for the damages myself. You're forgiven. Now, normally, I don't like to use myself uh, as examples, as an example of forgiveness, because I still really struggle with it, um, as, as I'm sure many of us do. But this story is just too funny. I was, uh, uh, gosh, um, I struggled with this idea for a long time. Um, that that if, if I was going to forgive a person, it didn't just mean being nice to the person who hurt me, uh, while still somehow trying to make them them pay. And, and, and I, in a season when I was wrestling with this, a season of trying to wrestle with forgiveness, um, I got hit by a car. <laughs> I, was, I, used to, I used to commute everywhere when I lived in Los Angeles on, uh, on a bicycle. I went everywhere on, on a bicycle. And I got, I got hit by a car. A woman came out of an alley and T-boned me. Straight up, license plate to pedal. And luckily, she didn't knock me over and drive over me, uh, but my, my front wheel fully tacoed. I went head over handlebars, slid across the hood of the car, and just like fell on the ground. Um, I actually had, I had flowers in my hand. <laughs> I had stopped at a flower shop to bring my wife flowers, and they were just decimated. And, and, I, and I, I, I hit the ground, and I like did a quick body check, you know, I was like, I think, I think I'm okay. I might, be in, I might be in shock, but I think I'm all right. I stand up, and this woman opens the door. This young woman gets out of her car. And, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Oh, my goodness. Like, she was definitely more shaken up than I was. And, uh, and, and we're talking. I was like, I think I'm okay. You know, I think it's all right. Like, I just need to carry my bike home. And she, she looks at my bike, and the wheel is just mangled. And she's like, oh, I need to buy you a new bike. Oh, my goodness. Let me, let me repair your bike. And and in this moment, this, this forgiveness came over me. And I'm like, I do not want to forgive this lady. Like she was driving way too fast down an alley. She was probably, I don't know, maybe she was on her phone. I do not want to forgive her. And God said, you're going to forgive her. And I was like, God, I don't want to forgive her. And he said, you're going to forgive her. I want you to see what this means. And so I'm standing there and I go, hey, I, I really appreciate your desire to to pay for my bike. But I, I understand this is as traumatic for you as it is for me. So whatever you consider, whatever you think you owe me, just consider it forgiven. And she looked at me so confused. And I looked back and I was like, I don't know what to say now. This is awkward. <laughs> and the words, the first words that came out of my mouth were, I'm a pastor here in town. <laughs> Just so awkward. And she looked, at, she looked at me and she goes, wait, really? And I said, uh, yeah, in fact, I have, I have a community group that meets at my house just down the street. We're meeting tomorrow night. Do you want to come? And she goes, I, I think I might. 
and I carry my bike home on my back. And, and I got home, I told my wife, I gave her the stems that I bought her. And, and I said, I, I said, you, you, have, you have no idea what just happened to me. Just looking at my bike, looking at the flowers. And, and I said, I said, she's, she, I told her the story. I said, she wants to come to community group. I was like, I got to tell everyone to pray. And so I get on my email. I, I email everyone in the community group. Guys, you have no idea what just happened, but God's using this. He's like, he's like working in this person's heart. She's going to come to community group. And she came. She, 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 actually, she actually came to community group. And we're sitting there and we're doing the Bible study and stuff like that. And everything's fine. And then, um, and then uh, after, the, the, after the Bible study, everyone's sitting around hanging out. And, uh, and, and it clicked in someone's mind. And they said, you're the one that hit Adam in your car. And she never came back. She didn't return my emails. She didn't return my phone calls. Just vanished into thin air. She never came back. That's not why I tell this story. Pray for her. Who knows what's going on in her life? But the reason I share this is to illustrate how completely foreign the concept of forgiveness actually is to people. When you are actually forgiven, when you know the full weight of your crime, you know the full weight of your sin, you know what you deserve, and not only do they not press charges, but they don't make you pay. We don't know what to do with that. It was, an, it was enough to get someone who had just ran me over in their car to a community group. We don't know what to do with that. It's so foreign, but it's so beautiful. And it's attractive to those who know they need it. So here's the thing. If you've lived in this world for five seconds, you know that you need this. You know that you need this kind of forgiveness. We can't just ignore the sin and expect it to go away. See, I hate that phrase that time heals all wounds. No, it doesn't. Time does not heal all wounds. If your car is vandalized, it's not just going to repair itself by like sitting there and waiting. I am currently being treated for a staph infection. And if I just let time go by, I'd be dead. No joke. It's been a rough week on antibiotics. Time does not heal all wounds. It doesn't. And see, many of you are trying to heal from wounds that have been committed against you, but you've never actually admitted that what was done to you was wrong. You're trying to forgive, and you're saying that it's okay, and that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness requires that you look at the crimes, you look at what has been done to you, and you say it's not okay. Whenever you're thinking about the pain that you're experiencing. And you're like, God, I know that because of what you did, it's okay. God says, it's not okay. It's not okay. I died for it. I'll heal you. It will be okay. But right now, it's not. It's not okay. It's not okay. Whatever that thing is that you're thinking about, whatever that that pain is, whether it was inflicted early on as a child or this morning, whatever it is, we try to make ourselves feel better by saying that it's okay. It's not okay. You need to know that pain, that sin, that crime that was committed against you, it's not okay. But that doesn't mean that you can't forgive. Doesn't mean that forgiveness is not possible. It is not okay. See, forgiveness requires a judgment against sin. 
This is what's happening on the cross. It is a judgment against sin. Just like healing requires a diagnosis of the problem on the cross, we see just how vile and horrific our sin is. We see how brutal it is. We see the violence of our sin, even our white-collar sin. Right, The sins in our life that we think, this is just a victimless crime. Right? It's, it, it's, not like I'm, it's not like I'm hurting anybody. Look at the cross. Jesus begs to differ. It is hurting somebody. It does hurt somebody. Our, our sin is violence against God. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't pretend like it's not a big deal. He doesn't just say it's cool. I've got enough to cover it in the bank. I'll take care of you. Don't, don't worry about it. He calls it what it is. It's violence against God, and yet he doesn't make you pay. Church, he doesn't make you pay for it. He doesn't hold you it against you. He doesn't cause you to suffer the penalty for your sin. He doesn't even make you pay for it. He forgives you and all the beauty and, and, and the power that that entails in Jesus Christ on the cross. If you believe, then God forgives you. Your sin is forgiven. Your debt is paid. You don't have to make the minimum payments. Your debt is paid. Some of you are struggling to believe that and you need to hear this. The word of God says, if you put your faith in Jesus and not just that he existed, but that what he did on the cross accomplishes your forgiveness, then your sin is forgiven. Your sin is forgiven. Stop trying to take it back off the cross and and do penance for it. Stop trying to make yourself worthy of your forgiveness. You're not worthy of it. You don't deserve the forgiveness. He gives it to you because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to pay. He wants to be with you. He wants you to rejoice in what he has done for you. He wants you to look at the cross, see the brutality and violence of your sin, and say it is finished. It is done. It is completed. It has been nailed to the cross. It has been put in the grave. And Jesus rose from the grave, leaving your sin there. It's done. Stop thinking about it. Stop worrying about it. Put your faith in Jesus. It's done. It's done. It is forgiven. We are forgiven. Many people hear this and they exclude themselves from this salvation. They think they've done too much. They think they've strayed too far. I know a young woman who came to me and said, that that all sounds nice, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. Realistically, there are some of you here today, maybe you think that you're exempt from the good news of salvation. Maybe you're trying to fight for it, but you're just saying to yourself, Pastor Adam, you you don't know what I've done. I don't know what you've done. I have no idea. But I know what Jesus has done. And I know that when Jesus was suffering on the cross for the sins of everyone, past, present, and future, who have ever lived and who will ever live, he didn't filter out you and say, not Johnny. He didn't filter your sin out. He didn't filter out a category of sin. He didn't filter anything out. He received it all. Stop trying to take it away from him. 
He wants to do this for you. He wanted to die for you. It was the plan all along. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever sin you're wrestling with, whatever whatever temptation you have to believe that it doesn't apply to you, the cross is greater. However shameful it is, Jesus took it away and nailed it to the cross. To try to pay penance for it is to try to earn your own salvation. And that's not why Jesus went to the cross. He did not show you how to earn it. He wants to show you how to receive it by simply believing and saying to Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for enduring the pain so that I could be set free from mine. This is what Christ has done for you. This is the power of the cross. It has accomplished your forgiveness. And when we know this, when we see this, when that image shifts and we see truly what's going on in the cross, Christians are not strange people. We're not so weird. We're forgiven. We're forgiven people. We're redeemed people because we have had an experience of the power of forgiveness on the cross. We can look at at what was meant for evil. What the religious leaders and the Romans and everyone else involved meant for evil. We can look at the cross. We can look at that instrument of torture and see the grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world looks at the cross and will see a defeated man, but you now know what's really going on. You now know what's really going on in what looks like a vile scene. He is not a defeated man. He is the king on the throne. He's the king on the throne. And this image of the the thieves crucified to his right and to his left, I can't help but think about James and John earlier in Mark's gospel who said, Jesus, grant us this wish that when you enter your kingdom, you grant to us the ability for one of us to sit on your right and one of us to sit on your left. Well, Jesus is crucified as the king of the Jews and they mean it in mockery, but it is true. And this cross that they kill him on is the throne that he reigns from. He is entering his kingdom with a thief on his right and a thief on his left. He is not a defeated man. He is the exalted king who knows exactly what he's doing, has power over what he is doing, submits himself to what we need and gladly dies for us. And in his power and authority, he rises again from the grave. And today we wait with joyful anticipation as we await his return. We await the king who died for us. Can you imagine the moment you see his face? Let's pray together. Jesus, we want to see you, Lord. God, we want to see in Christ on the cross, our King on the throne. And by your grace, we have. By the power of your Spirit, we do. And Lord, we see a Savior who does not lament what he is doing or what he had to do. We see a Savior that for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame because he loves his people. And so God, for the rest of our time together today, we want to say thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Today, tomorrow, every day, for the rest of our lives, Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.